Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. It is produced by David Border-Giles, Cameo Daly, Maithili Maher, Matt Barlow and myself, Timothy Neal. This podcast is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and is supported by the Australian Anthropological Society. Hello, kia ora, welcome. Thank you for tuning into this episode. In it, Matt Barlow talks to environmental and sociocultural anthropologist Marlene Sir about her new book, Jungle Passports, Fences, Mobility and Citizenship at the Northeast India-Bangladesh border. As Marlene tells Matt, around the time that she started fieldwork in the borderlands between Northeast India and Bangladesh, the Indian military began building a border fence. And quickly, the fence, its building, its symbolic and actual impacts on people's lives became very much a part of her fieldwork and are very much what this book is about too. Talking about this book is a conversation about, amongst other things, life in the borderlands, the dangerous and the generative alike. So, Malini, by way of introductions, could you tell us a little bit about what initially brought you to the field of anthropology? Uh, Thanks, Matt, for your invitation and uh, for this question. Uh, Today, I'm speaking to you from the lands of the Darug Nation. Uh, I pay my respects to elders past, present and emergent. As we know, these lands have never been ceded and they never will. You know, I actually started out in the discipline of political science uh, with a very keen interest in political violence, questions of displacement, refugees, especially in conflict zones. Uh, Subsequently, that led to an interest in fieldwork, especially ethnographic fieldwork. And uh, I was incredibly lucky to... uh, have studied at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, where I had absolutely brilliant teachers like Amit Abhide and Kamini Kapadia, uh, you know, who actually trained me to do Mm -hmm. fieldwork. And I had that space at uh, TIS uh, where, you know, all the dilemmas, the conflicting situations that I was facing, uh, the struggles of you know, meeting people in very distressful and very precarious circumstances, I could actually come back with that regularly and have brainstorming sessions with my teachers, with my peers. And that really honed my skills as a field worker. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I feel is that we don't talk enough about field work in anthropology. You know, I feel field work should be made a part of the curriculum. It's not just about having an academic discussion on methods, you know. Mm-hmm. It's about the nitty-gritties, the anxieties, the uncertainties, and how do we come back to the ac- academy and have a productive discussion around what we encounter in the field. So it was during this time at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences that I uh, did a dissertation that was based, an MA dissertation that was based on almost six months of fieldwork. Uh, I did this under the uh, sociologist Padma Velaskar, who remains even today one of my most favorite uh, 
professors. You know, she's a very dear teacher. And I studied uh, the impact of partition um, on two generations of women who occupied, uh, uh, you know, parts of southern Calcutta, which at a certain historical point after the partition of the Indian subcontinent in 1947, were a series of swamp and marshlands inhabited primarily by Muslim artisans. And you had dispossessed uh, upper middle class Hindu refugees coming and finding themselves in a situation of state apathy uh, and complete, uh, you know, disempowerment. And uh, you had a very strong squatter movement here, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was very sensitive to the fact that refugees are not a mass of dispossessed people because in South Asia, through the 1950s, you can see that refugees, including refugee women, were very important political actors, you know, mm -hmm. and they made very distinct claims to citizenship. They couldn't take anything for granted. So um, subsequently, I went on to, um, uh, you know, work with various uh, NGOs and activist groups. Uh, I was a part of, uh, you know, larger social movements. And I continued studying uh, human rights. So, uh, you know, I was very attentive at that point of time to this kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a gap between the letter of the international law that got codified through, uh, you know, nation states and parliaments and the kind of lived realities on the ground, especially the... Uh, the density of social life in, in conditions of poverty... Uh, the cultural specificities that surrounded questions of violence and the ways in which people were experiencing violence. And this finally led me uh, to Social Science Research Council, where my entire notion of South Asia was actually turned on its head. So if you walked into the South Asia program of uh, social sciences at the time that I worked from them in our DC office, uh, we had a poster that was... Uh, uh, that was done at Himal in Nepal. And it had mm. the upturned map. You know, it uh, was South Asia up, upside down. So you mm -hmm. actually began thinking about South Asia with Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka was right on top. And mm. this is where my interests, uh, you know, in anthropology, I met Anna Singh, I met Amita Bhaviskar, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, the kind of work that the SSRC was doing at that point in South Asia was constantly challenging methodological nationalism that completely dominated the study of borders, border societies, and nation mm -hmm. state at that point of time. And subsequently, uh, you know, my tenure in SSRC ended and I started a PhD in anthropology at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, under Willem von Schendel. And that's where my interest uh, in the study of borderland societies, in the study of labor migration, in making sense of the world, both through the comparative uh, historical method and through ethnography, uh, you know, shaped the ways I think today. Wow, that's, uh, that's some journey. <laughs> it's <laughs> sort of, you, you moved around quite a lot and... Um... Interesting context to to your sort of academic history, I guess. I mean, you've now done research in Kolkata and in the borderlands between India and Bangladesh, in the eastern Himalayas. And 
So, I mean, you kind of elaborated on it a little bit there, but what took you to these places and how did you become to be more settled and more focused um, in the chars of uh, Assam or Bangladesh? Uh, You know, one thing, once I reached Amsterdam, if there was one thing I was most certain about is that I'm not going to do a study of partition and Bengal anymore. Right? So <laughs> right. so I grew up, I'm, I'm a Bengali, I grew up in the city of Calcutta. And uh, by that time already, there was a lot of work uh, on, uh, on, on Bengal and partition. And you had a kind of a missing part of this grand narrative mm. of partition, which was the part about the border. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and uh, so uh, the project, the larger project that I was a part of, the Legal but Illicit Project, which was a consortium of scholars, not just in Amsterdam, but in Pakistan, Afghanistan, China, you know, uh, Kerala, Dubai. Uh, so we we decided that I would begin my my fieldwork in the state of Assam, which is a border state in northeast India, which shares a very contentious boundary with Bangladesh, and the question of the presence of undocumented uh, Bangladeshis, formerly from eastern Bengal, and later uh, from Bangladesh after 1971, was uh, was very central to the ways in which border discourses were being framed. So the in- initial intention was that I would go there and this would be a labor ethnography. You know, mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. establish trust, relationships of trust with one group of undocumented uh, migrants from Bangladesh. And then from Assam, I would leave and follow their wider networks into Indian cities and then move with them and then kind of go back and study their stretched life worlds in Bangladesh. Now, when I reached Assam, uh, you know, one of the first things that my Assamese friends, and this this also includes anthropologists, uh, they said, ah, don't go to the chores. They're very tricky, dangerous, risky locations. And there's always a bit, there was always a, you know, a streak of strong disobedience in me as a, as a student, as a scholar. Mm-hmm. And I think um, being an anthropologist, there was a bit of a risk junkie in me. <laughs> and these two kind of productively made me absolutely glued to the border. Because when I reached there, India was constructing a multi-layered high security fence with Bangladesh mm-hmm. and the construction had just started. And this entire zone of rice fields you know the chores here, uh, Matt. Are these? Uh, you know, it's it's a misnomer to call them sandbars because they actually start off as these sandy alluvial regions. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, where rivers rivers gush out silt for settlement, and then peasants laboriously reclaim these regions, these these parcels of land, and convert them into agrarian territory and property, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, so you have this ecologically shifting region in Assam, uh, you know, that interpersed uh, the tributaries of the mighty river Brahmaputra. Mm-hmm. So the land itself was shifting and then it was surrounded. It was very green. You know, it, it had rice fields, it, has, it had farms. And then you had this angular, very lethal looking metal uh, infrastructure being mm-hmm. built. And I got completely glued uh, to this architecture, you know, and this entire state apparatus and the kind of 
uh, flows that happened across it and beyond it. So I didn't leave the border. So mm-hmm. my not leaving the border also meant that in addition to these uh, ecologically shifting zones that straddle both Assam and certain districts of Bangladesh, I also started moving uphill mm-hmm. towards the Garo Hills and then again downhill towards the foothills and plains of Bangladesh. And I studied a very specific zone of Bangladesh in addition to the kind of um, uh, the chore zones where uh, which are predominantly inhabited by Muslims of Bengali origins on the side of Assam and Bengali Muslims on the Bangladesh side. I also started studying the life worlds and the mobilities of indigenous garos uh, who are primarily Christians. So that's what took me back to this particular zone. And this odd-shaped triangular zone uh, was my point of uh, entering into the anthropology of borders and border societies right up to 2015 when I did my last round of fieldwork. And mm. uh, soon after, uh, I became a parent. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody talks about this enough. But it's extremely challenging to do fieldwork uh, as a parent. And I encountered these challenges in in the city of Kolkata. Uh, I, I grew up in the city and I haven't uh, lived in the city for the last 20 years. I've, I've left India for a long time, but I keep going back to it. And this is when I, I, I started thinking about, uh, you know, urban mobility, environmental politics, degraded air, repair economies, and a range of things by which I could do long-term fieldwork in the city. Actually, my fieldwork in Kolkata uh, started earlier in 2014, 2015, and continued through the early uh, years of parenting, and I could take my child and, uh, you know, do do fieldwork in Kolkata. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. I think um, I can't speak as a parent, but from my experiences of meeting researchers who are doing fieldwork as a parent um, with their children, it's um, it can either be really beneficial in some ways, and, and but also obviously it can make it much more difficult as well to be able to to move around and you, you have different priorities. And so, I, yeah, I, I thank you for sharing that and how that sort of affected what you were able to do with your fieldwork. It also seems like the, yeah, the, there was the disjuncture between this border fence and this particular ecology that, that really sort of drew you in initially. And I think that's something that we'll return to later in this conversation, perhaps. Um, but for those who haven't read your recent book, Jungle Passports, which is a wonderful book published this year with the University of Pennsylvania Press, could you give us a quick summary of, of the book, a sketch of, of the layout of the book? And I guess you've already given us a sort of fieldwork context for this work, but perhaps a little bit more uh, detail about um, where this book took you to in terms of fieldwork. Thanks, Matt. Uh, at the heart of Jungle Passports are, are two central questions, you know. One is what is it that propels life to continue to revolve around a very heavily fortified fence amid violence, scarcity, fear, and uncertainty. And the second is how have long-standing socio-ecological histories 
and territorial conflicts severed emergent political topographies of mobility, nationalism, and citizenship. And what I try to show in this book in, in different ways is how even in the face of the sheer force of state violence, deadly ecologies, incursive infrastructures that I just spoke about, borders remain permeable. And I argue that such porosity is hardly generative of failed projects of nationalism and border militarization. Instead, it attests to how border societies are constantly recalibrating the nation's power of territorial regulation in their own lives. So the book begins its arc in Romari, a remote border town in Bangladesh, where people's recollections surrounding an old trade route, the Romari Thura Road, animates discussions you know these are like everyday village discussions that i encounter now today romari and thura are situated in two nation states romari in bangladesh and thura in india and yet as my book shows they belong to a borderland now the road itself is a metaphor for disruption mobility connection identity longing you know the road itself is a fence and a connector themes that this that my book engages with and you know by starting out with a historical route I was also able to um, uh, transcend the most obvious religious dichotomy through which uh, India and Bangladesh have been studied which is uh, the division of these uh, nation states into Hindu and Muslim as well as very conventional understandings on uh, gender and ethnicity. Now, what I started doing as an anthropologist, you know, there's one kind of excitement when people tell you something in the field and you see a resonance of that in the archive. That's one kind of excitement, you know, the puzzle comes together. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another kind of excitement when, when, when there's a disjuncture between what people are telling you and what colonial archives are revealing. And So I started searching for this road in old maps. And instead, what did I find? I found its traces in the heliotropes of British colonial surveyors as they were battling forest fires and haze. I found this map in a a devastating earthquake. But most importantly, I also found this road in the making and the marking of the Hilgaros as a tribe. Now, What I do in my book is I continue journeying on the road through time. I I locate its changing forms through rice harvests that were raided and lost. Uh, And very unknowingly, uh, I also travel on this road with bull traders and transporters. In the book, I leave the road temporarily to follow Garo women's jungle passport journeys and the judicial trials of suspected Bangladeshis while carefully attending to questions of identity, legitimacy and mobility, which informs border lives. Now, the road finally makes a return in jungle passports through India's new border fence, fears and recollections of a war. Now, I had a final look at the road through the lens of an Indian soldier's binoculars. As I held the binocular to my eyes, Bangladesh actually seemed so near. And this even as Indian villagers arrived at this military outpost, seeking permission to see the new barrier. And this this was a remote rural landscape. And you can see this metallic barrier, a majestic structure, standing between rice fields and forests. And people were pointing towards Bangladesh as a new foreign land. So that's where I leave 
my readers with mm -hmm. in the book. It's a wonderful overview. Thank you. Um, so you've kind of touched on this already as well, but the, the fieldwork involved in this research was quite precarious and, and dangerous and um, even frightening. Um, you're quite candid about that in, in the introduction in the first chapter of your book. How are some of the ways which you managed this in your fieldwork being situated in, in such a sort of militarized and violent space? Matt, you know, no amount of methodological insights can ever prepare anthropologists who are not from these regions for the intense military scrutiny that ordinary villagers and borderlanders endure in such locations, and they endure it day in and day out, you know. It's, it's absolutely relentless and what it does to your mind and bodies. Now, I had arrived at the India-Bangladesh border uh, and realizing that I was studying a, a zone like Northeast India, which the Indian state and other actors had intensely militarized. I, I had assumed that I had arrived at the border very well prepared for its dangers. So in a way, I was armed with, uh, you know, keen insights from Carolyn non Nordstrom and Antonius Robbins' collection of essays, very aptly titled Fieldwork Under Fire. I'd also closely read, among others, Linda Green's Fear as a Way of Life, such a powerful ethnography on Mayan widows whose husbands had disappeared during the counterinsurgency in Guatemala. And, you know, the, the rawness of tra trauma and the nightmares that Green describes and sketches out in her work were very, uh, very deeply etched in my mind. So I had been judicious as a student of anthropology and I had carefully attended to the methodological stakes involved in conducting fieldwork in dangerous borders, but nothing prepares you for what mm. you encounter. And in trying to manage uh in trying to manage safety, security, in trying to protect people who I was living and traveling with, uh, in also trying to be responsible for their well-being and to see that my own work there did not uh, have any adverse impact, uh, in trying to manage you know, the intense scrutiny of, of the state gaze, and also the gaze of uh, rival cartels in this entire landscape. Mm -hmm. um, what I was actually doing was I was continually living with the dangers emanating from guns, bullets, outposts, uh, you know, networks of transborder trade. And the other thing was sound and voice, you know. I mm -hmm. was constantly... Uh, hearing uh, crackling, hissing, muffled sounds, you know, sounds of wireless radios, uh, voices of people, animals, even at night. Uh, mm. You know, uh, these remote rural regions can magically transform into very vibrant centers of exchange and transactions. And a lot of these, because of the specific modalities of militarization, occur at night. So there was a complete blurring of of the night and the day of uh you know daylight and and darkness and my body was ever vigilant ever nervous mm -hmm. uh, ever vulnerable you know 
and it was almost as if being close to this uh this this larger uh infrastructure uh had released my skin you know the border had almost mm-hmm. released my skin of its sensory capacities and yet you know its pores continue to expose my nerves and organs to the border and even even when i was far away and uh you know i i would jump out of my skin at the sight of a green patchy uniform be it in amsterdam be it on a flight that i was taking from turkey to dubai to attend a conference and uh be it in sydney you know so it's that kind of you know one part of it is the kind of nervous jerkiness made famous by tosics uh you know fine writing on the brutality of political violence but the other part of it is the ways in which these linger in your mind and bodies continually mm. uh morphing into things that you don't don't really realize and uh morphing into aspects of your life that you still struggle to comprehend and come to terms with mhm were there some like concrete ways in which you did manage that during the field work though like while you were there that you can think of like were there were there things you had to put in place to um safeguard yourself and the people you were spending time with yes yes so one of the ways in which uh you know it was very clear that uh, i could not take a place uh on rent mm-hmm. and stay in an isolated a little house in remote in these kind of remote border villages the first thing and this really worked to my advantage i always lived with families in the villages mm-hmm. on both sides of the border mm-hmm. all the long uh, you know long term uh, uh field work that i did i i took shelter and i lived with people in their own houses and mm-hmm. uh i i must reveal that at times these were houses of uh important village elders mm-hmm. including uh you know teachers including people who had a kind of a standing mm-hmm. in the village but i also lived with very very lived and traveled with very ordinary transporters mm-hmm. uh very small scale traders and the like uh i i was also sheltered in in christian religious institutions uh in especially in remote um uh, parts of the borderland where uh, you know people who lived along the last stretches of the border for their own security and for my security they were fearful of my residing with mm-hmm. them in in some stretches of the borderland i resided with religious institutions and i think these are ways of being situated in field work in a way that you are surrounded by people and that definitely helped me to a great extent yeah yeah this book does a a fantastic job of demonstrating how borders can be not only incredibly violent as we've just discussed um the tip of the spear of the modern state in many cases uh but can also be quite generative uh as these kind of interstitial spaces and they sort of uh yeah they generate their own systems of exchange if you like um could you tell us a little bit more about how you encountered maybe initially the the generative quality of these borderlands uh, that's a fantastic question matt you know uh there was not a single day 
that I was not reminded about the border's violence in the biopolitical sense. But again, there was not a single day, not a single moment that the events that happened uh, and the kind of everyday occurrings around this uh, fence did not remind me of the border's productive, generative, regenerative potential Mm -hmm. in people's lives. It's almost as if, you know, people who are so far away from the district centers, the administrative centers, the national capital, uh, had to turn towards the border and what lay beyond it in order to make sense of their lives and indeed their livelihoods. And let me, let me, uh, uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, the title of the book, Jungle Passports. Sure. Uh, and this this is not uh, my expression. This is not a term that I coined sitting in Parramatta or Sydney or in Amsterdam. <laughs> this, this is uh, an expression used by uh, indigenous uh, Garo borderlanders, primarily um, women traders who are mostly Christian, who have a long history of trading in garments that goes back to almost 50, 70 years. And uh, they give meaning to their border crossings without papers as recourse to jungle passport, which initially, which which implies paperless travel, but which also implies a deep knowledge and a deep relationship with the forests that mm. interpersed this landscape with the streams that interpose this landscape and their right to mobility mm-hmm. without making claims to land as political territory. And here lies the distinction between this kind of an indigenous Garo borderland that I study and the more uh, agrarian territories that border Assam and Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Here I am in the state of Meghalaya in northeast India. And along Greater Maiman Singh and Netrokona districts of Bangladesh, and you know there was never a moment I I lived uh, with border societies who were experiencing great great scarcity, intermittent periods of excruciating hunger, you know, and then there were these moments of uh, you know um, feasts and rejoicing the moment border gates had opened and small-scale traders and transporters were able to move back and forth and you know children were running out flying kites and saying signal clear line clear the border is open (laughs) and these these very ordinary words in english language you know signal line clear they had been domesticated Mm -hmm. in the border lexicon and the lexicon here was Neither quite Assamese nor quite Bengali nor indeed quite Garo, but but there were several um, you know in between languages uh, in this region uh, that people spoke in, and indeed there was a very rich bordery lexicon, and that lexicon, which also includes uh, you know expressions like farm form, mm-hmm. which means deceit, duplicity, dismissiveness, all of that. Uh, and denotes, uh, you know, specific kinds of border brokerage and gatekeeping, Mm -hmm. also speaks to the border's productive capacity. So time and again, I came back, people who were living along these regions and who were making a living out of uh, the border and uh, India's border fence with Bangladesh, time and again forced me back 
to the border as a site of economic exchange, the border as a site of sustenance, the border as a site of profit. Mm -hmm. One way to understand um, the complexities of of what you're describing in this book is um, through its kind of thick description. And this book is is thick in description, particularly in the first few chapters. Um, It is archival and richly um, ethnographic. And with such complex, uh, with a such complex field site, with many moving parts, literally sort of <laughs> moving parts, people, uh, landscapes, um, you name it, I imagine the the this thick description in some ways followed on from that environment um, in a kind of what some might call a milieu-specific sort of form of analysis or form of writing that kind of replicates the, the environment in which it was generated from. And I've picked up on some conversations more broadly in anthropology about the need for a return to this kind of thick ethnographic description in lieu of an over-theoretical sort of framework, I guess. Uh, Did you always have this kind of writing in mind? And what what sort of genre is ethnographic writing to you? Or what what sort of genre of ethnographic, ethnographic writing do you like to do, I guess? Uh, You know, Jungle Passports uh, is a reflection of who I am as an ethnographer Mm. and who I am as a writer. Uh, But as you know, the process of writing is excruciatingly painful. It's difficult. In academia, writing occurs in productive dialogue with peers, with senior academics, with unknown members of the academy. It happens in different contexts. It happens across geographies. It happens across time. The project really began in my dissertation at the Amsterdam School for Social Science Research, which, as you know, is known for its labor studies uh, programs, as well as, uh, you know, its focus on the comparative historical method. Uh, So in my dissertation, the style in which I wrote my dissertation attempted to reconcile the historical comparative method with a kind of an ethnographic narrative. Subsequently, I had an ethnographic writing fellowship at the University of Toronto with their Department of Anthropology. And, um, you know, I was in um, Singapore at the National Uh, University of Singapore at the Asia Research Centre in Singapore. And I was a part of a large cohort of anthropologists and geographers who were studying Asia. Now, it was really after the final round of my fieldwork, a lot of the taken for granted assumptions that I had about people's kinship and ethnic identities came to be challenged in that last phase of fieldwork that I really started reconsidering, uh, you know, what I was writing and how I was writing and the expressions that my writing would take. And what I did was I entered into a period of isolation, you know, from uh, being in constant dialogue with peers, academics, uh, you know, fellow anthropologists and conferences, I went into a period of isolation in which I attempted to find my own voice as an author. And that voice emerged in very productive uh, dialogue with my fieldwork, with mm-hmm. people's lives who I had studied. You know, what I had read 
what I had read formed this broader template in my head. But the expressions and the intricacies of writing emerged directly from, it was almost like a one-to-one conversation in my head and on paper. Mm. And I started writing very, writing and rewriting very, very obsessively. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, what I tried to do in Jungle Passport is to uh, privilege uh you know, the voices, the sounds, and the lives that I came to uh, be exposed to during these long, long years of fieldwork and to do justice to that through my writing. And, uh, you know, um, what has excited me, you know, now that the book is out, what has probably excited me the most is students I don't know from all over the world saying what a delight it is to read. It almost reads like a novel, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, just by the way, um, I was insulted in a, in, a, in a seminar in which just, just a month ago or so in which uh, an academic continually used the word novel, novel to describe my writing. Oh, wow. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a very dismissive way. And I said, hey, look, every time you call my, my book a novel, I take that as a compliment. So... I mean, indeed, I do if it's accessible Mm -hmm. and uh, if it makes people find it easy reading, Mm -hmm. uh, I I, I take that as a credit. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things about the book that I that I really loved was the way in which the chars or the fluvial nature of the landscape seem to be represented in the ways that the social and the political form formations um, were mobilized um, in the in the region and as as I mentioned a little earlier you do tend to these themes of ecology and and infrastructure and um, and exchange uh, through your book and I'm wondering in what ways do nature or perhaps the the non-human animals or water and culture say politics or kinship become conflated or 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 differentiate themselves in, in this part of the world. I feel like this is um, a sort of a theme that runs through your book that is sometimes sort of pokes out, but is never really explicitly the theme, this nature culture sort of binary. So I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to that. Thank you. Thank you. So what I do in the early part of the book is really foreground the question of ecology, you mm-hmm. know, And I do it with a way, not just in terms of uh, revisiting the long history of uh, British colonial mapping along the frontiers of Northeast India, but also to productively engage with the everyday realities of that fluid landscape, you know, a landscape that stands at the crossroads of these large infrastructures cultures, you know, both in terms of the kind of uh, cultures of the uh, shifting shorelands, but also the Garo uh, forms of kinship, indeed, the matrilineal kinship, the Mahari, and the kind of animals uh, along which people cohabit this landscape, you know, a range of animals from cows, pigs, uh, elephants, uh, you know, to cats. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to to animals who have been domesticated, goats in Bangladesh. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I kind of 
reflected upon in this book time and again took me back to the kind of impermanence of land and mm. the impermanence the frailty of the ecology and uh, you know the kind of intense militarization of this landscape which has also led to making fragile relationships of kinship relationships that people have with non-human animals and as radhika govindrajan and others have reminded us you know there's a deep relationality there's a deep entanglement mm. uh, that people have with animals and i think radhika radhika also very early on in animal intimacy tells us that it's for better and for worse and often mm. it's for the worse and one of the things that i was particularly drawn to was in the garo borderland where uh, you know people have cohabited uh, this landscape with with uh, elephants uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they have been uh, sharing this landscape with elephants uh, and having relationships of civility deference and fear and uh, you know which have kind of mitigated their unequal people's unequal relationships with elephants as, as massive animals which need a lot of resources to survive and can pose a lot of uh, destruction and uh, i and this this in a way also kind of matched the relationships that people had had established with uh, indian and bangladeshi border troops in this region mm. where kinship you know as as delimited by lines of blood uh completely stretched and expanded and you know it was this kind of a landscape where you know people were standing at the crossroads of massive infrastructures changing ecologies uh changing relationships with animals uh that opened kinships analytic potential from mm. being delimited within lines of blood and being circumscribed within communities who mm. lived in specific geographical area to a much broader analytic plane that included strangers and that included um, uh, you know non-human animals and this is where uh, you know time and again i look towards the border and the borderland uh trying to understand what analytic potential it offered for us to revisit and rethink some of the conventional wisdom in anthropology mm yeah i think it does that really really well um i just i'd like to now turn to some of your other work um you've you've done work in in multiple locations in, in sort of northeast india and I'm particularly drawn to your ethnographic film Life Cycles. Um and I'm wondering well perhaps if you could give a a brief overview of what Life Cycles is. Um but then um where maybe speak to where this research fits um and this film fits within your broader interests. um and what inspired you to get into ethnographic filmmaking i have a feeling it's probably something around mobilities and 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 mobilizing but i, I won't put words in your mouth <laughs> so um life cycle is about the uncertain place of uh, bicycles in india uh it's about you know are these relics of a 
past? Are these post-carbon emissaries in, in Indian cities that have uh, high degrees of air pollution? What are the battles for the road in Indian cities where middle classes are increasingly buying cars? Mm-hmm. And as, you know, as things start in my life, everything that I do seems to start from Amsterdam. So this entire urban cycling project started in a conversation. I was walking along one of the canals in Amsterdam, speaking to Willem Monchendel, my supervisor. And I soon, and I had just finished defending my dissertation publicly. Everybody was happy. So what next? And Willem, Mario Rutten and others at the University of Amsterdam were trying to put together a little team that would look at cycling as a starting point to rethink uh, cities in Asia, Africa, and questions of everyday mobility. So uh, I became a part of the early thinking for this. Uh, The project didn't get funded, but lo and behold, I returned to Calcutta and I returned to a city where I found that the traffic police had actually prevented, had imposed a lot of restrictions on cycling Uh, and uh, you know uh, when I came back there were almost 112 roads that were off limits to cyclists and I realized it was not just the commuters you know people who commute to work on cycles but the daily wage laborers the cargo cyclists of Kolkata who carry up to 100 to 150 uh, kgs of goods on their cycle mm. and Matt, the big gas know, cylinders i've seen it yeah. gas <laughs> cylinders industrial waste yeah. i think you yeah. and i need to have a long conversation <laughs> perhaps <on> yeah. <laughs> yeah of waste and uh, you know you write about slow uh, slow infrastructures mm-hmm. and uh, you know at one point i wrote about slow cycling Oh, you wow. know, so yeah. We have a lot of convergences for conversations in the future. And so I, I tried to make sense of what was happening in the city. So uh, uh, with, with a fabulous group of cinematographers and sound recordists and sound designers and a fabulous editor who are all named uh, in my film, uh, you know, we got together and this was the first film that I directed. And I also interviewed the police. I interviewed police constables. We spent long hours uh, shooting in in various locations of Calcutta in the fish auctions, etc. So, you know, when I was in Amsterdam, uh, I had done a lot of photography and uh, all my border photographs had been exhibited in Europe and Asia. There was a traveling exhibition uh, mm-hmm. that I had collaborated for. And, you know, I had finished my PhD. I had absolutely no intentions of converting my dissertation into a book. So, and I wanted to make a film, you know. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to go through that entire process of putting a film together. And as a consequence, while I was in the uh, recording studio, you know, while I was... Uh, in discussions with Abdul Rajak, who's a professor of sound, I also realized that one of the things that I needed to pay attention to was sounds, not just sounds from fieldwork and the sounds in my head that I've written about, but also what is sound and how do I hear sound? So, uh, you know, in the last two years, I've been collaborating uh, with the sound recordist and designer, Amla Papori, on urban sounds. 
wow. which which also includes sounds in Australia. So that's an emergent area of work that ethnographic filmmaking led to. That sounds really fascinating. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, is are there any sort of direct ways in which you think about this work in Kolkata as being similar or different to your work in the Borderlands? Is is there something that overlaps there for you? And what is that? Yes, there is. So, so you know, urban anthropology in Kolkata is so very different from working in a rural, militarized borderland. Uh, in, in Kolkata, I'm very familiar, right? I, mm-hmm. I grew up in that city. Uh, but there's, there's one very important theme that connects my work uh, along the borderlands uh, and in Kolkata, and that's the theme of informality mm. and illicitness. So I'm studying a vast range of repair and informal economies mm. in Kolkata. And that is a very, you know, that's a field fraught with anxiety and contestations because people are operating in the gaps of the law. Yeah. These are, again, like, you know, people are doing it for subsistence, but there are also brokers who are doing it for high profits. Mm -hmm. So you have to do that very fine border balancing, even when you study informal economies in cities. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that that, that is uh, the link, and I can I can see that now. So, life cycles and jungle passports are also about mobility and movement in its various forms. And I'm wondering if there was something early on in your career that inspired you in that regard, or have I got this wrong? And is it actually informality that is the the kernel that you know that really inspired you early on? No, I think you're right in assuming that it's mobility that has defined my work in the last 10 years or so, and it continues to define my work. And I'm not with scholars who dismiss mobility into the kind of back rooms of urban sociology or cultural geography. Uh, I think anthropology has a big contribution to make to the study of both historical and contemporary mobility. And... uh, I come to it in two ways. One, I think for far too long, uh, scholars have taken for granted the distinctions between the sedentary and the mobile. And this has completely dominated our understanding of, let's say, farming as a Mm -hmm. sedentarized practice compared to the itinerant mobile, uh, you know, indigenous uh, cultivators, and this is not just uh, something that guides academic debates in Asia and divides uh, our our conceptual understanding of the world into oh, history does uh, uh, farming and uh, you know understands uh, uh, the relationship that people uh, had to land and agriculture, whereas anthropology does customs, Sweden, and you know uh, culture. And I think for far too long, we've taken these distinctions for granted. And there's a very interesting debate going on in anthropology uh, as we speak with the dark eagle, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's one thing. The other thing is that, you know, there is a kind of a conceit in assuming that we only need to study capital 
or mm. we only need to foreground uh, economy as a way of understanding mobility i think it's quite the other way around you mm. know mm. let me give you one very simple example it's by attending to the diverse ways in which people cross the border the diverse ways in which they confer meanings to their everyday or their long term journeys and the the specificities of the present within which that mobility occurs i was able to take a step back and study capital mm-hmm. and study yeah. infrastructure you know and i think it it has been my endeavor also in jungle passports to bring mobility back and to have it center stage in discussions on space and power mm. yeah i think you've done a really wonderful job in that regard and you just reminded me of a a kernel of wisdom that someone shared with me at a a conference in 2017 there was sort of a discussion on a panel and they just mentioned that they always like to flip things right so if if there's a a sort of inherent or assumed order or or um lineage to flip that and and see what happens when you look at it the other way around and i've always sort of try to keep that in mind as as a kind of analytic trick or tool that if i'm thinking about even just two or three words in a in a particular order to flip that order and then see what do those words then mean in a different way um and i think yeah you just reminded me of that when thinking about mobility informing a kind of capital so is there anything you've been reading recently that you've been particularly enthralled by or anything that you're dying to read once you have a spare minute i mean i, I know you just mentioned uh, radhika govindran's wonderful book um i too really enjoyed that book so is there anything else you've been reading recently you know i have just pre-ordered the nutmeg's curse amitabh ghosh's wonderful latest book and i'm just waiting to get my hands on it I have absolute vested interest in seeing how he spins a complex story around one single spice. You know, I'm very mm-hmm. very excited uh about this book. I've read the great derangement and I loved it and uh you know I'm very very looking forward to reading this book. He remains one of my favorite anthropologists and writers and I think mm-hmm. in an antique land should be a part of every anthropology course mm-hmm. on, on field work and on writing uh, it's a book that inspires me shadow lines again mm-hmm. on you know partition is a fabulous fabulous work so that's what i'm really looking forward to reading wonderful yeah i i purchased a copy of the hungry tide when i was in kolkata actually and i i carried it around with me and so um yeah amitav ghosh's and i actually read uh, the great derangement while i was in darjeeling doing field work as well so i i similarly have carried around amitav ghosh's work um with me over the last few years um and so you mentioned a little bit earlier about this um sound project and listening project that is on the horizon for you but is there anything else on the horizon uh, what's what's next for you well uh, matter i've done almost 3 and a half years of field work with urban cyclists and cargo cyclists and repair workers in kolkata mm-hmm. so that project is staring at my face saying can <laughs> it down so i i i need to i need to put that together um it's it's going to be a a monograph so oh wonderful that's something that is in my immediate horizon 
The other thing is this archive of sounds that I was telling you about. It's an mm-hmm. archive that I'm developing with Amla Popori, and we are working both in India and Australia. The third thing is, um, you know, finally, after five years of arriving in Australia, I'm a part of a very, uh, very uh, engaged uh, collaborative project on, on museums as cultural infrastructure. And there's a small segment of that project which, uh, which I hope to uh, lead and, uh, you know, work towards a, doc- a documentary on the Parramatta River. So that's something that I'm wow. really looking forward to. Yeah, that all sounds really fascinating. Um, and I think we do have some, some conversations <laughs> in, in, in the future exactly. <laughs> that we need to have because I'm, uh, I'm also very si- similarly interested in low-carbon, no-carbon forms of transport, um, whether that's cycling or otherwise. And um, I'm also very interested in sound uh, as a musician as well. So, yeah, maybe, maybe we need to bookmark a conversation next year sometime. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I was, I was noting that. In fact, you know, you were on my list of people to call up when I got stuck with my oh, wow. project. <laughs> okay, Matt, top on the list. Yeah. Well, I yeah, my I um I'm always always happy to to have that conversation for sure. Thanks so much for joining us uh today, Malini, for this conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It was my This episode of Conversations in Anthropology was recorded by Matt Barlow on the lands of the Karana people, and it was edited by Matt and myself, Maithli Meher, with support from David Border-Giles, Tim Neal, and Cameo Daly. Conversations in Anthropology is supported more broadly by the Australian Anthropological Society and the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, and it's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. You can find us online on all your usual podcast hosting platforms as well as on Twitter at AnthroConvo and at our new website built by Matt Barlow which is at www.anthroconvo.com Thanks very much. Take care. We'll see you again.